we're not having a great time together because we disagree on these things. So if we could somehow get people back to the conversation and mirroring in each other and then maybe realizing that they have a lot more in common than what's keeping them apart, I think everybody's life quality could be increased. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. I'm Lynn Borton, host of Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Come, choose to be curious with us. I think a lot of people are coming out of the pandemic feeling more than a little rusty about being with other people as if we've forgotten how to start a conversation in 3D or that we need to rebuild our social stamina muscles, like getting out of a cast and having your leg all pale and wobbly. I've been thinking about that for young kids in particular, whose acculturation to others was so disrupted. I wonder about the long-term consequences. And for all of us, not just in terms of talking with the known nearby folks of our daily lives, but with genuine strangers even more so which is part of what caught my and a loyal listener's eye when Joe Keohane's book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World, came out in June 2021, just as the world was trying to reopen. Keohane's thesis is simple. Talking to strangers makes us better, smarter, and happier people. And he devotes the book to making his case with scientific data and his own wonderful anecdotal evidence. His proposed remedies happen to involve a certain amount of curiosity, by the way. But Keohane points to two barriers that rattled my curiosity conversation radar. The first is what's called the lesser mind problem, that we humans don't have any real way to know what's going on in some other random person's head. And we have a rather unfortunate subconscious tendency, a baked-in bias, to view others' minds as less vivid and intense than our own. So we end up thinking of the people behind those minds as lesser as well. The second barrier, which builds on and exacerbates the first, is civil inattention. The way those of us who live in cities in particular give one another a wide berth and learn to just zone one another out. The irony of the city, as Keohane puts it, is that it throws us into the company of hundreds of thousands or millions of strangers and then, subtly or not so subtly, indicates that that we're not supposed to talk to them. But what if we did? What if we actually made a point of talking, not just to people not known to us, but to people who seem or maybe look unfamiliar, who make us uneasy? And what if someone came up with a framework to make that quite doable for the rest of us? I don't know when I first learned about the human library, but I do know it was love at first sight. The human library, which got its start in Copenhagen in 2000, aims to address people's prejudices by helping them talk to people they would not normally meet. You know, I love a good analogy, and the library metaphor is deep here. The human library publishes people as open books. People come to the library as readers. Everyone comes to a safe space for dialogue and opportunity to challenge stereotypes and for the chance to unjudge someone. 
now active on six continents in 85 countries and newly online, the Human Library is the brainchild of Ronnie Abergel and his brother Danny and colleagues Asma Muna and Christopher Erickson. And I'm delighted to have Ronnie join me today from Denmark. So welcome, Ronnie. Thank you, Lynn. Great to be with you. You had me at all you need is courage and curiosity. Well, it's true. It is what you need. And Joe is right about that in his book, too, that, that it's, it's rewarding for us to connect and, and engage with strangers. Uh, and I recently spent some time with Joe in Amsterdam for a, you know, a future and community, a togetherness accelerator. And I got some time to talk to him about his book and hear his presentation. Oh, uh, great. Just, yeah, he gives a speech. So it's, it's wonderful that you would quote his book um, in the opening of this program. Because it really is, you could say, the same thing we offer in a safe space and in a framework where you truly can engage with a stranger, but without that uncertainty that you might have on the bus or on the street or in the grocery store, because here you know that the stranger volunteered to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the inspiration for the Human Library? It's such, it's so inspired but what was the inspiration? Well, thank you. I mean, um, I've always been a very curious person. And I was the type of kid who would point fingers at people that were different and, and like pull my mom on the sleeve and say, who's that? And what's that? And why does that person look like this? And, and she would always try to hush me a little and say, Shh, you can't point fingers or you can't say that. So mm-hmm. I would call out the elephant in the room. <laughs> if somebody was what would have a birthmark on their face or, you know, if somebody was missing an arm or somebody was in a wheelchair or disabled in a visible way. Or, and, and I was just this kind of kid. I didn't really have a filter. Uh, I was so curious and I really wanted to know the answer. So I would ask the question. And so many years ago, as you mentioned, over 20 years ago, we had an opportunity to come up with something really Uh, challenging because the people who brought us a small budget said, do something for us that really forces our guests to like engage on a deeper level. And now it was a music festival. So typically people will come to a music festival to drink beers or a glass of red wine, hear great music, connect with their friends, dance, hug, kiss, (laughs) maybe smoke a joint or something. I don't know. I don't want to judge. But festival is, a, is typically a very open and relaxed and chill environment where people come to, you know, just hang out and experience different things. And I thought, what if we could give them an experience that really goes a step deeper than Bob Dylan or Beastie Boys or, you know, whoever is on stage playing the music, but actually you could connect with somebody that normally you would never potentially have access yeah, to yeah. or never get to connect with. And then one Christopher said, oh, you mean like a library? And I said, yeah, yeah. Imagine if people would be on loan at a library and we could like, uh, you know, they could be an open book and it could be even people we don't like or that we think we don't like because we don't really know them. We don't, we just know that we have some social apprehension against them. And then I started throwing stereotypes out there or groups that were stigmatized by stereotypes out there like, like the bodybuilder, you know, the guy with the big muscles. We all assume he's got no brain and he's compensating with the muscles. And, and they were like, yeah, yeah, I assume that too. And, 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 and then we're like, okay, so who else do we have assumptions about? 
and we built a list. And before we knew it, we had a list of 75 different groups in our community. Yeah, it's not hard to imagine. No, you know, because police officers, sex workers, unemployed, homeless, uh, people who attempted suicide, um, we just, we or unhoused. There were so many groups that we were apprehensive about, nervous about, afraid of, or just didn't like. You know, right. for some reason, we're like, oh, I don't like those type of people, or I don't like that group of, and, and we're like, okay, so let's see if we could get them to come and sort of volunteer. And then, you know, one of my other coworkers, Asma, said, but that's a lot of unpopular people. Why would they come and sort of face the public like that? I said, look, uh-huh. if you've been misunderstood your whole life, imagine a chance to explain who you are. Well, and to be an ambassador for other people like you, right? Well, that was the next question was, but why would they do that? I said, look, if they can help us better understand, they're paving the way for all the other people right behind them who are autistic or schizophrenic or obese or of a different color or religion or orientation and so on and so. And so we basically realized that we had in masquerading as a library, using that whole analogy with readers and books and librarians and rules and bring the book back on time and don't take it home and bring it back in the same condition and treat the book like you would want to be treated. We created a framework for something that really was, could be potentially very challenging and difficult conversations, right. even conversations about great taboos like uh, grief, bereavement, uh, sexual assault, we had books that were open on incest, mm-hmm. talking about what had happened to them. Not in detail of the actual sort of crime, but how it impacted their life, how the, the negative stereotypes had sort of also prevented them from healing in a proper way, and, you know, or addressing everyday taboos like death, something yeah. none of us like to think about or even talk about, but we're all facing it. In the end, isn't isn't it? So why are we not more willing to have these conversations? Why do we not have those opportunities? And so we thought the worst thing that could happen, imagine nobody really wanted to take part in our our idea. Then we'd have 50 to 75 different books on the bookshelf. And what were they going to be doing while they're waiting for their readers? They could talk to one another. Yeah, they'll be reading each other. So immediately... The policeman said, so what's your topic? Well, I'm the free marijuana activist. Oh, really? And, you know, <laughs> and there we go. Conversation just happened. And they, before we knew it, they were all connecting and basically walking the walk on the inside uh. of the library, becoming friends, finding common ground. And all of a sudden, readers started coming in. And boom, before we knew it, we had over a thousand books lent out in four days. Wow. That was wow. incredible. One police officer came over and he said to me, I don't know if you understand what you created here. I said, I think I do. He said, but yeah, but my experience today, you got to hear about it. And then this Eric shared to me how these young anti-fascist movement readers, Antifa, as we mm-hmm. know them, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. These young people who are related to the Antifa movement had borrowed the police officer to really speak, you know, informally and, and, and personally and talk about, you know, what it's like to be in the police force. What, what, what are you thinking of when you're in a demonstration against us, when you're trying to hold back our demonstration? We're 
we're demonstrating for our rights and for our you know political views and you're like standing on the side waiting to shoot tear gas and what's going through your mind and and all these great questions and after about an hour because at the original event we lent our books out for up to two hours you don't have wow. to take them to yeah because <laughs> our idea was, i know it's a long time <laughs> to spend with a stranger but really because of the festival yeah, the yeah. four-day framework and the opportunity to maybe go together and experience some music or culture. But so these Antifa readers, three or four of them, three of them had borrowed Eric. And about an hour into the conversation, a group of their friends came over. And they were like, oh, guys, you won't believe this. Uh, we've got a policeman here. And some of them were really cool about it. And one of them was not cool about it at all. Mm -hmm. And sort of his bad history with police came up. And he started insulting our book. And Eric told me before he could even get up and defend himself, guess what his readers did? They, they jumped in. in. Yeah. Yeah. They jumped in and they said, look, you don't know this guy. We know this guy. Please sit down and shut up. Okay. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Ronnie Abergell, co-founder and CEO of the Human Library, which seeks to address people's prejudices by helping them talk to people they would not normally meet. I spent most of my career in the mental health field here in the United States, and, and we were really focused on anti-stigma work. But it became evident that the most effective anti-stigma work was just letting people talk to people who were living with a mental illness. Nothing you could say, none of the statistics, it's like diabetes, none of that mattered. But giving people an opportunity to be in conversation, just to meet somebody. I mean, what you're describing really bears out what we were experiencing. We based our library on 15 pillars of prejudice. One of them is mental health. Mm-hmm. And it is a global bestseller, you could say. I mean, all around the world, yep. the stigma of mental health issues is, is incredible and not in a positive way. It's right. just, it is so clear and present. And there is an incredible fear um, amongst many people, not just to talk about it, but to also to, you know, themselves be, be impacted by mental health issues. But just, and the imagination that people who have schizophrenia are dangerous, people who have ADHD or autism or bipolar or, and so on. And, and it's just, it's, uh, it's ne it never goes out of our mind here at the human library to always carry a strong focus on mental health. Because whether you're in Japan, South Korea, Bangladesh, South Africa, Tunisia, the United States or Canada or Denmark, there is just always a demand for these conversations. So it's like global, it's one of those global issues that we must always have present in our events. So one of the things that I've been really struck about, I mean, your story about the, about the Antifa and the police officer is a good example. This is a two-way street, right? The books make themselves available. They open themselves. But a lot depends on the reader's curiosity. Absolutely. And they're courage. And courage. So it's, it, yeah, it's something we really say about our libraries. You, you need to bring two things to benefit from, from this learning space. It's, it's courage mm -hmm. and curiosity. 
So allow yourself to be curious and allow yourself to ask the questions that, that, that your parents always said, you can't ask that. Because in this space you can, if you're respectful and sincere about the question, please ask the question. Our books would love to answer it. They wanna help you better understand who they are and where they come from. So if, so if you've got the courage in a way to bring forth the question, then they've got the courage to answer it. That raises an interesting question about sort of who shows up. I mean, who are your readers? Are they, oh, wow. are they people that you expect to show up? Are they people you don't expect to show up? I mean, I get surprised very often because I'm, I'll be the first to admit that we all judge and we all have prejudices and stereotypes. And I think that it's, um, it's, it's even for us every day a learning experience to see who comes to us. But in order to really answer your question about who our readers are, I think the library is for everybody. I want to say that first. It's for everybody because we all judge and we all can benefit from the opportunity to potentially unjudge or at least um, investigate some of the labels we already printed and added to some groups in our community. Now, the second part is we have to look at where are we publishing our books and how. We go to companies and publish. And of course, certain staff join us from certain companies and they have one experience. And you could say the readers in that context are corporate readers doing the human library as part of their diversity, equity and, and, and inclusion training. Now in the public space, like the public libraries, this, this weekend we were in Cincinnati um, and we were online Sunday for the public and there was a readers were from Vietnam, readers were from Canada, readers were from, from many different, from Germany, so from cool. many different countries joining us. Yep. So it was a global readership. Um, I think it's very different depending on framework, but some of the surprises I had was this couple that joined us, they drove about 40 miles to get to an in-person event at a democracy festival that was we were hosting uh, a, a, a three-day publishing event where we're publishing books every day for this democracy festival as part of the program. And this married couple in their mid-40s, late-40s, came over to borrow our victim of incest. Now, it turned out that their daughter, now 27 at the time, um, had developed an eating disorder, had attempted suicide, all these different things that happened to this girl from when she was 14. And they had just recently learned that it was because the wife's little brother had committed a sexual mm -hmm. offense against her. So she was the victim mm -hmm. of incest. And, and they came to borrow our open book to learn, to ask questions, to get answers they couldn't get from their child. Like, what can we do to support our daughter? Um, how do you think we should act in regards to my wife's brother, you know, uh, the little brother and, and uh, the perpetrator, or you could say the offender, and, and so on and so forth. I don't have all the details because obviously I wasn't in the reading, but when our book came back, she was incredibly moved by their openness, by their honesty, and their very, you know, big need to find answers to important questions for them and for their child. And I've had other situations where, you know, someone who was very skeptical about, for example, Muslim people, she came and she borrowed our Muslim book and after 30 minutes, this was in a public library. 
And after 30 minutes, she got up and I saw it. She gave him a big hug. <laughs> she said to him, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our time together, but I don't believe that you're really Muslim. <laughs> and our open book said, but whoa, I can't. I, but I answered all your questions. What happened? How come you didn't believe? And this was all very friendly. Um, how come you don't believe that I'm really Muslim? She said, because you don't fulfill any of my stereotypes. So, so I mean, I, mean I, I became very humble years back and I realized who am I to judge or to even you know, say what readers use the space for. You can come because you need advice. You can come to learn about your own unconscious bias. You can come to be provoked a little, maybe borrow a Trump supporter or NRA member or somebody who's, who's not for pro-choice. You, 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 know, you can challenge your own perceptions, but no matter what you choose and what you do, you're gonna walk away smarter, wiser, probably more empathetic even when you meet someone where you agree to disagree uh and and you you may not find a lot of common ground with somebody that's incredibly different from you but you're going to mirror your humanity in that person and you're going to understand where they're coming from and i've learned myself that when you understand where people are coming from even though we're very different we're much more keen to accept yeah. each other because you know lynn I don't mind you being very Christian or very something as long as I know why. And I understand when I understand, I, I also see it's no threat to me being what I am and living my life. And thus we could actually get beyond that difference and find common ground about so many other things that we share. So it really is for me, a sad situation looking at this polarization, political polarization of the United States where neighbors are angry with each other in principle because they disagree on matters that really don't mean a great deal in our daily life. But they're like up here, up in the air somewhere. And that's why me and my neighbor who could have a great time together, we're not having a great time together because we disagree on these things. So if we could somehow get people back to the conversation and mirroring in each other, and then maybe realizing that they have a lot more in common than what's keeping them apart. I think everybody's life quality could be increased. I truly believe that we can all benefit from better understanding each other. And that, and that creates networks and opportunities for us. Because when I respect your right to be different, and you respect my right, we can actually get along and do stuff. So what is, what is real wealth in this world? Is it having a lot of money in the bank or is it having a lot of opportunity with the people in your community? I think that's a different type of wealth that is underestimated, but being able to connect across communities, have people come out to help you, people that have empathy with you, people that like you, people who disagree with you, but like you and understand you, and we can still be friends. That is for me a certain type of richness that, that is more rewarding than money. Sure. Money creates, uh, you know, material opportunities and you can buy a big house or you can have two cars or you can go on a long holiday somewhere. But true richness comes from people and engaging with other people, at least in my system. And I feel like I'm one of the wealthiest people in the world. And I live in my small apartment here and I drive an old car. I'm not very materialistically rich but I'm rich on understanding different people. Nice. Very nice. Well, that is all a wonderful segue to my big jar of wannabe analogies, which is all about 
finding the commonality between two very different things. So you ready for this? So this is my big dare. I've been dreading, I've been dreading the moment. Yeah, it's so much scarier in anticipation <laughs> than in reality. So hey, in this jar, I have is. little slips of paper mm. and uh, they have random words written on them. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay. So yours is a bed. How is curiosity like a bed? And mine is laughter. And then I have one for the audience. Do you want to go first or you want me to go well, just for helping me and give me some inspiration, I'll let you go first. You're the expert. Thank okay. You. So how is curiosity like laughter? Well, I, I think um, life is kind of incomplete without laughter. I think laughter um, can sometimes take us by surprise. It can be kind of explosive and kind of overwhelm us in a way that curiosity can as well. Um, and I think laughter is also good for what ails us. And I think curiosity, I mean, to, to what you've been doing for the last 22 years, that curiosity is good for what ails us individually, but also as a, as a society. So that's how I'll say curiosity is like laughter. How is curiosity like a bed? Very nice. Well, I think every night I lie down on a bed of curiosity mm. in the sense that I'm curious to what my dreams will bring me. What will, what will be the, the, the thinking that happens while I sleep and what will I wake up with? Because I often wake up and then I had vivid dreams and people were in my dreams and they did stuff that they normally wouldn't do out in the real world. The other day I had a dream about uh, Don King, the boxing promoter. <laughs> he was in my dream. And this is somebody I didn't even see Don King on TV for 10 years or something or more. Why did he show up in my dream? And recently also my wife showed up, my, my wife who unfortunately passed away uh, nine years mm. ago, and she was so present. So before I lie down on my bed, I'm always curious what I'm going to be dreaming about and how that's going to be inspiring to me when I wake up or maybe even a little frightening. Nice. Thank you for that. Sure. Um, and audience, yours is dinner out. How is curiosity like having dinner out? Let us know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for this and for what you've been doing all these years. It's really, it's really wonderful. Well, thank you, Lynn. It's been my pleasure. And I got to say, the real thanks is not for me. I am but a messenger, but it's for those books that come out to publish, for their courage, for their openness, and for their willingness to share their journey with complete strangers and help them better understand is really who we all owe thanks to because we are nothing without those books. So my gratitude, my thanks are, are really with our books from around the world for giving their time to the Shorn Library. I thank them. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. You can find this and all my previous shows at choosetobecurious.com. And you can find me on social media at choosetobecurious, where you can also share your dinner out analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Ronnie Abergel. Links to the Human Library on my website, as well as more information about Joe Cahane's book. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Come As You Are by Cauldron via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then... Choose to be curious.